lockdown. What a disaster. You are yeah, sucked in. Dan Andrews. Yeah, the man. He wants he hates freedom. Has has <laughs> he hates he, he hates, hates freedom. freedom. He wants us dead. In our houses, not outside. Yeah, that's right. Because we know we know that Dan doesn't have your best interests at heart. Like because he's not only, you know, dictatorially, dictator Dan <laughs> is locking you guys down. And he's doing that despite the fact that he has unleashed a wave of coronavirus on you. Personally. So he's, he's literally trying to kill you. It was him. He is patient zero. <laughs> he's the super spreader. Yeah, he just went licking poles everywhere. His, his commie mates in China have been in the lab and he's out there spreading it around. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. He was at the wet market. <laughs> he was the wet market, mate. <laughs> he was the bat. The Chinese just can't stop eating Dan Andrews. <laughs> It's delicious to them. <laughs> so what we're referencing here is the fact that there seems to be something weird going on with the discourse around Daniel Andrews. I presume his name is Daniel. Yeah, I think so. The Premier of Victoria. I always knew him as Dan. Well, you know, you and your ALP mates, James, so yeah. it's a boys club. <laughs> My secret shame. Not so secret now. I mean, what's what's interesting to me, and I think to you too as well, James, right, is is that basically the same form of discourse around the Premier Victoria Dan Andrews is shared by both right and left. So I have been having a very odd experience the last couple of weeks. As a result of my university, bizarrely, don't know how this has happened, but bizarrely has done a deal with News Corp where all the staff at my institution have access to the Murdoch Press. So that means the Australian, the the quality Murdoch-run national newspaper, Australia's only national newspaper, and also to the Daily Telegraph, the local Sydney tabloid. And it's very interesting. Like this is, I have never really looked at the Australian before now because all the the Murdoch Press is completely paywalled. Like you cannot read anything on the Murdoch Press in Australia, which is most of the press, unless you have the paywall. Or of course, if you read a physical copy. Now, the Daily Telegraph, the Sydney tabloids, the main or most widely read newspaper in Sydney. So I read it pretty frequently, like if I'm in a takeaway or something, like I'm, I'm pretty familiar with what Daily Telegraph's like. The Australian, I mean, it's, it's the national newspaper, but it's actually not very widely read in Sydney or Melbourne because Sydney or Melbourne have their own local, basically left-wing quality newspapers, the, the Fairfax newspapers, the Age in Melbourne and the Sydney Morning Herald in Sydney. The Australian is, is, I take it, widely read in parts of the country like Queensland, which don't have a local... I mean, I'm saying quality newspaper because this is what used to be called a broadsheet newspaper, but of course, I don't know if the Australian's still in broadsheet, but the other papers aren't still in broadsheet now. Broadsheet's kind of disappeared. Yeah, so th- there's parts of Australia where a lot of people are reading the Australian, but I wasn't in them. Anyway, long story short, now reading the Australian. It's a weird, it's a bizarre alternative universe in which things are seen in very different ways to, you know, I'm used to seeing them. And absolutely, you know, a constant refrain is this refrain about dictator Dan. Because the basic tenor of of the Australian's editorial line currently is anti-lockdown. And this seems to be, it's a really interesting thing. And you've seen this replicated around the world, which is the right, the the centre right tend to kind of, never mind the far right, also show this tendency in an extreme way, tend to be opposed to the coronavirus lockdown. And the centre-left tend to be more pro-lockdown, um, with the obvious exception, as has been pointed out 
vociferously from the right, with the obvious exception of, of Black Lives Matter marches, which I think it's fair to say there's a little bit of dissonance there on the left in terms of... Yeah, but the, Australia, the, the Australians' soft brain take on this, which I'm, I'm getting around to talking about, is this, this idea that on the one hand, Dan is a terrible dictator because he's locked up. So, I mean, Dan is very clearly out of all the Australian premiers, and particularly the big issue in the early days of the lockdown was about schools, and Dan was an outlier in terms of really wanting to close schools in Melbourne. So he's been, he's been the kind of poster boy for a hard lockdown. And Melbourne has had the hardest lockdown, basically, in Australia. Yet, Melbourne has ended up with the worst coronavirus problem. And I suggested on a previous recording, although actually I don't know if it, if it made it to the final pod, but I suggested in a previous medical cheat conversation with James that actually this is a paradoxical thing that the harder lockdown actually caused more spread. But actually that doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, actually what now seems to be the evidence is that the outbreak in Melbourne has been caused entirely by lax practices around hotel quarantine, uh, uniquely lax practices. So despite the fact that you had a harder lockdown, you actually did the least in terms of, so the Labor government in, in Melbourne is clearly, I think, to blame to this. Like I'm, I'm going to, you know, go with the Australian line on it. I mean, but I, I think this, this candidly must be the case, right? So that clearly at some, somewhere in the Labor government, I mean, this decision has been made. It's a uniquely Victorian decision. And a kind of paradoxical one, right? That a left-wing government decided to put hotel quarantine entirely in the hands of private contractors, private security contractors, which no other state did. So New South Wales, I mean, there's a hotel like five minutes walk from me, which had people in interstate quarantine in it. And that meant there were cops outside the building. Like the police in New South Wales ran quarantine and seemed to have done so quite effectively. It's an oddity that in Melbourne that wasn't done. But this leads to this, this paradoxical claim from the right that on the one hand, Dictator Dan is this kind of pro-state communist who's attacking our civil liberties. But on the other hand, he's also culpable for messing up. As a total argument, it makes no sense at all. They were simultaneously saying, oh, you know, we need to reopen the economy. We can't eliminate coronavirus. And then the guy who is actually unleashing the coronavirus in this is bad. This is right. Dan is at a strange position in, that, in the sense that he's under heavy attack from the right for reasons that he always has been, ideological reasons. But he's also under attack from the left now because of the hard lock of the council flats. So he's in trouble from both sides. And of course, as you say, it's completely incoherent because early on in the initial lockdown, the right-wing press was enraged that, you know, things like people couldn't play golf and all of these kinds of things, which were allowed this time, by the way. So he, he learned his lesson. As you say, then, but now there's, a, there's an incoherent sort of attack from the right now as well, saying that he didn't do the right thing. Whereas, as you say, he had the, the, the hardest lockdown was, was in Melbourne. But, and now I've noticed, I mean, I live in a fairly conservative area, and I've now noticed that there's whispers about, oh, I mean, common, this is not new, but the common saying about Dan, which is that he's, he's, in, uh, he's under the control of the unions. And, and, this is, and this is why the lockdown failed, because he was favouring his union mates. I mean, would that that were so, you know, because the, the, the security companies are famously not unionised, and especially the ones that were being used. And, you know, I mean, not, not saying that would, have, that would have solved the problem, but it is just, this is a very simple point, but it is true. The right are just using this as an opportunity to attack in the old, the old familiar ideological ways. But what's interesting about it is that now he has lost a lot of his sheen on the left, 
probably fairly in some in some respects, and I think probably unfairly in others, depending on. Um, I think the council the council flat situation was probably handled a bit was a bit heavy handed, but I think there's also there were key reasons for it. You know, I have this very cautious reaction to this. So I keep, I mean, I keep thinking this about the COVID nineteen at every stage. I'm like, they haven't done enough. They haven't done enough. And very pro Dan Andrews, but actually, I mean, the, the, I should really shut up about it because to be honest, like, you know, things have gone much better than I ever would have expected them to. You know, in the past, and it seems to me like we should be, you know, we should be in lockdown in Sydney because you know, the 14-day incubation period, we've closed the border with, with Victoria, but, you know, not really airtight and pretty late in the day. It only takes a few people. And, you know, we just had a weekend in Sydney where, I mean, I was out yesterday in my local area. I have in, you know, I've been living in this area on and off for the last 18 years. I've never seen so much foot traffic in my life. Like it was the busiest I've ever seen it social distancing is not in effect at all, even though it's legally mandated. And I think most people don't even realise that, that we're supposed to be still doing this stuff. Uh, it's just, it, it's blowing my mind. And yeah, I mean, very minimum, close the hotels down again. Like, I, I think this is is crazy. Yeah, it's, it's wild to me that, you know, when they closed the border and there were all those cars just flooding into New South Wales and Victoria, and you just think this this is insane. And also the fact that even though we're in this this lockdown, it seems different to last time insofar as no one seems to be abiding by it. Okay, I was interested to, to know. Okay, so that's what's happening in Melbourne. Yeah, and again, I think that's indicative of where I'm living because, again, this is the, the, the narrative has turned into dictator Dan hates our freedom and we're going to do it anyway. I mean, I think they, they, this was always kind of known and it's, it's the reason for this Victorian paradox that was talking about in the sense that basically the, um, the, the state does not have the capacity to enforce a lockdown. This is what's happened in the UK, for example. Like The government basically depend on the goodwill of the population to have a lockdown. The police, even the police plus the army, would not be enough to genuinely enforce it. And people get tired of it. I, I just think, yeah, it's it's over. Like we we had we had a bite of that apple, and we've eaten it. There's no way, unfortunately, I think we can seriously turn the turn the clock back on this. So so we're we're fucked. Yeah, I think that's true. Going back to something we were saying last week, and I think in some ways, like the most controversial thing we've, we've yet, yet kind of said on this podcast, but. I mean, this this really comes back, I think, to the kind of hegemony of liberalism over both sides of politics. I think both sides of politics ultimately have a have a very very similar read here, but through slightly different lenses. So both sides of politics are fundamentally concerned with freedom. I mean, the libertarianism and liberalism. Libertarianism is what like an extreme form of liberalism. Both of them ultimately think think freedom is the ultimate goal of politics. They're they're nihilistic forms of politics, which which are uh, you know guided by a kind of vision of negative liberty, which they think you know political action is supposed to supposed to secure. But of course, you know, for them, right? So the right wing's version of this is the freedom to go off and conduct business meetings, and the left wing version of this is freedom to be polyamorous other kin. And uh, that, those two things, like uh, you know, uh, to to some extent, can be reconciled. I think that's what was the capital libertarian space is exactly where like everyone's like, yes, I I want to golf while dressed as a furry, and then go and shoot someone who's trespassing on my property. As as they should. You know, both left and right wing ideologies here end up being the ideological enframing of this impetus to disobey the lockdown. This is going back to this very, very basic kind of cold Freudian point that that we're making in recent weeks, that the superego is there to serve the id, that Black Lives Matter is the cause that gives very conscientious left-wing types the excuse to go out on the streets and have big mass gatherings and feel very sanctimonious about it. And 
on the right, I mean, they they don't even need that because they, I mean, the conspiracy, coronavirus conspiracy theories obviously serve this function, but the right basically already feel aggrieved about the whole thing to begin with. Like the, you know, the kind of boomer right conservatives never wanted to lock down and um, basically never believed it was happening or there was any need to. I guess the economy is the big the big super egotic excuse because you go, which is which is certainly what the Australian harps on about. And I mean, there's a, there's actually a very clear logic to this. I mean, I, I think it's it's not vacuous in the sense that it's entirely possible that the economic damage done by the lockdowns will cause more human misery than the virus. I mean, we, we basically don't know. And it also, it depends. I mean, it depends on kind of utilitarian calculus of human misery. I mean, I, honestly, I, I mean, I, to, in the end, I don't think it's possible to accurately calculate this. But I, I don't think it's if if one takes a kind of classical hedonistic utilitarian view of this, it's not clear which is the lesser evil. Now, the the lockdown is based on a logic which is not utilitarian. It's it's, it's at least not hedonistically utilitarian. It's it's kind of bio-utilitarian or biopolitical that is about protecting life at all costs not human happiness. And that is the actual logic on which our societies run. It's not trying to maximize, maximize pleasure or happiness. It's trying to maximize life. And that's, so the, you know, the idea of the lockdown, and this is, this is the idea of our lives in general, is that people should be kept alive much more than that they should be kept happy. And the, the right-wing objection to that, which is, I want to go golfing, I don't care if I die, because I enjoy golfing, it's not um, irrational. Like you can't say that that doesn't make rational sense. And and I mean to be to be fair to to the the boomer right, they're the people that most in danger of yep. of dying from coronavirus. You know, I mean, I'm thinking of a very you know my my archetype of the the right wing boomer is someone who's like a kind of pro euthanasia, like spend all the kids' inheritance on my retirement. Let's go on cruises and go golfing. And I think that you know that is the absolute typical psychological state of the, of the archetypal boomer and the the boomer would rather die than not golf i think that's that's interesting and this comes back to i think a point we made in our original episode mark which is that no one has any idea what's going on and i think this is really the nub of it in the sense that both the right and the left are responding in you know different ways to the fact to the, the truth of the matter which is that actually the future is incredibly uncertain and this is both on an, on an economic level in the sense no one knows, no one knows what's going to happen to the economy and on just on the level of the virus as well, insofar as the more we find out about it, the more unclear it becomes. And so, you know, so you think of terms of, you know, they're now, there's now evidence to suggest that you're only immune for a few months. There's now the, the evidence for the people who had what seemed at first to be minor cases of the virus, but are now having kind of weird neurological symptoms, muscular symptoms, you know, three, four, five months after the effect. So no one actually knows what the virus does to you. And people are losing their minds and they do so in different ways. And, you know, a, a good canary in the coal mine here, or maybe not, maybe not a good one, but certainly a one, is Peter Hitchens. Did you see he was losing his mind in the British media on the weekend? Um, incredibly, I've missed this uh, particular outburst from the hitch. He was basically saying social distancing is no good. We have to get rid of it. And there should be, as long as everyone in a social gathering can agree that they'll wear the risks, they should be able to do that. Like the most like literally the most cooked take of all. Like he said, so his example was everyone should, we should be able to go to the cinema if everyone in the cinema agrees to wear the risk. That's classical liberalism, but actually very disappointing from Peter Hitchens because, uh, you know, one thinks he's more based than that. Yeah, exactly. I, I wanted, I, I was hoping for more. I mean, I, Hitchens is, is, is an, is an odd case. Cause he's, I mean, he's, he's famously kind of the most based by which I, you know, for normies, like I mean the most right wing person in the kind of British 
like media commentary at. But he's actually he's not that smart or that interesting. Like he's 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 just he me looks smart and interesting by you know comparison to you know the the entire the rest of the British commentariat who almost to a man just say what you expect them to say and don't. I mean Hitchens at least. I mean he's evincing it here. Like you don't, don't quite know what he's going to do next, which at least makes him interesting. So yeah, like this this is right. I mean this is something I've mentioned before, but there was this great article by uh, people from the Grattan Institute fairly early on in the lockdown when it became clear how successful the Australian lockdown was being, saying that we need to move towards the elimination of the coronavirus in Australia. And I thought this was exactly right. And it's exactly right for the reasons you say, which is we don't actually know what the long-term consequences of the coronavirus will be. We don't actually know how bad this disease is. Uh, it could be absolutely catastrophic in terms of post-viral syndromes and all the rest of it. What was said in opposition to that was tended to be this kind of mealy-mouthed, ah, oh, well, the economy. But actually, I think what the truth is, is much more disturbing than that, which is that it is literally not possible to do elimination because the only way you can eliminate the coronavirus is by there being levels of spontaneous social compliance, which you could never get out of the Australian populace. That's the kind of the dark truth that actually, I mean, this really must be hidden, which is that the state is not in control. The state cannot control the population enough to protect the population, which means that the state actually can't do its job. And that's, I think, what we're seeing now, namely that both sides of politics, the state is a bogeyman to them because they're liberals and they look at the state and they go, oh, the state is doing terrible things and thinking the state could potentially do more and wouldn't that be terrible? But the reality is that the state is powerless and we're in a situation where the coronavirus is inevitably going to take hold of this country because the state is powerless to prevent the tiny number of people who had it from spreading it around. Although, I mean, having said that, actually, I think we probably could have eliminated it if we just uh, managed hotel quarantine properly in Melbourne or genuinely closed the borders to new arrivals. What the fuck has happened with the Melbourne quarantine? Because as you said, so the, the, you're clearly hearing from local boomers, but this is, this is the Australian's line, which is the reason that Melbourne, Victoria, did not have state-run hotel quarantine and left it to the private sector is because of union deals. Now, I tend to think that this is slightly Mr. Mark. Probably the most likely reason is that this has happened because, as we now know, dramatically came out like a month ago, the Melbourne Labour Party is completely bent. And I, by that, I mean not the homophobic kind, but that it's corrupt. I mean, and if, if there's a union relation, the reason it's union relation is because of corruption in the Labour movement, not because of... Yeah. Uh, you know, genuine concerns with workers' rights and entitlements. That, I think, has to be the source thing. And, you know, this this is absolute uh, massive malignancy in the Australian Labour Party, specifically in the Victorian branch, which I take it hasn't been hounded out. They've, I mean, there's a couple of people, but th- they've been running that branch for years. I mean, that that seems to be the case. So this is presumably what's happened. It's it's literally, you know, I don't know what, like envelopes full of cash. No, I, I, I haven't actually looked into the details of the corruption other than other than the fact that it was clearly completely out of control insofar as they've now handed over control of the Victorian branch to Steve Brax uh, for the next three years. So it was obviously so rotten. It was obviously so rotten. And I mean, you know, this is, this is uh, personal confession time, which was already alluded to early on. You know, I joined the Labor Party last year after the election in a kind of fit of rage and disappointment. How much they pay you, James? How much were you paid? <laughs> if only. And, and I just want to make clear that I'm no longer a member of the Labor Party, but I was briefly. And it was actually, I mean, I don't know actually how much of this ties into the nature of the corruption, but it was actually wild how little 
actually occurred, like how little correspondence I received from the Labour Party. There was no sense of being a member of the local community or the local branch, or there, it was completely sort of alienated and bizarre. It was a very strange experience. And I, when the news broke regard, in, regarding, uh, in regards to the corruption, we, and that was basically what they were talking about, you know, branches of, you know, 30 or 40 people, 30 of whom were kind of fake, you know. So it was just this, it's, it's a, the party is fake on, on, at its very foundation. Yeah, and the, and the, the I mean the Australian don't want to dwell on this because it's the, the problem with the Labour Party has nothing to do with it being a left wing no. organisation. I mean it's exactly the opposite. It's been captured by basically criminal elements uh, who don't who are completely non ideological. That, that's exactly right, and, and 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 it's it's just they're just different criminal elements on either side. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. allegedly. Um, and and also the the fact that did you actually rock up to any brunch meetings while you were no? I never had the courage. Yeah, well, then, then you, you can't. I mean, to be honest, like that—that'd be why no one. Oh yeah, it. absolutely. And why oh, it's part of the community? But, but no, it's, it's, it's at least eighty percent my fault. But at the same time, it for example, after I joined, it took I think four months to hear anything back, and then I received the membership card, which with all which I showed you with all of the which 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 said triple J. Yeah, with all of the Labor Party's uh, sort of achievements. The, the biggest of which was to establish the, the youth-oriented radio station, Triple J. Yeah, and I just wanted to, uh, just, I couldn't believe I'd given 50 bucks to the Labour Party. It was just, <laughs> it was like, I was like, this is the worst thing I've ever done. I've literally funded terror. A full disclosure, I've joined some political parties in my time, but not that <laughs> Yeah, no, it was pretty bad. It was literally the next day after, after the election. I was just so sad. I didn't really know how to deal with it. I can't believe I've admitted that I joined the Labour Party. This is, like, this is bad. This is, this is... Well, I can remove. I can no, remove. No, the world, it needs to, world needs to learn from my mistakes. <laughs> I mean, I don't, you know, yeah. I mean, what in the great scheme of things, fifty bucks of your money has gone into like a slush fund. Yeah, feels good, man. Yeah, I haven't. Has, has Geordie's done a video about the Labor Party in Victoria? I'd be very interested to see what he has to say. No, he hasn't. But he's been very because he's running the line that uh, Gladys is, you know, koala killer. Which and, she, she, I mean, I think he's very, I mean, that, very convinced. Yeah. Yeah, he's ba- he's bang on on this, but he's avoided the 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 Dan Andrews stuff because I think it would be quite hard because he defends Daniel Andrews a lot. Yeah, but I think Daniel Andrews. I mean, Daniel Andrews is a clean skin in this, right? I think you know this is he's almost a figurehead. Dan Andrews is like a proper Labor Party guy who is genuinely is he from left left faction? I mean, yeah, or down there, but yeah, like he he's a genuine genuine lefty who's in it for the right reasons, but he's ended up being you know, a figurehead of a government that's right for the corruption, which is, we saw this at a national level with Gillard. I was about to say we saw it in New South Wales, but actually we never, we, had a, we never really had a left-wing Labour Party leader in those many years. Of the, you know, we had this this long period of Labour government in New South Wales that began before I ever came here, so I assume in the late 90s. This is Bob Carr, right? We had Bob Carr and then we had a series of other premiers. Yeah, Maurice Yemmer, Christina Keneally, I even forget the name of the guy after four Keneally. There's a guy who was in very, very briefly who who like tried to take on the kind of Eddie Obede corrupt side of the, not allegedly, but proven in court corrupt side of the Labour Party and was like ousted. Nathan, Nathan Reese was, was the 41st, 41st premier, premier of, of New, New South, South Wales. Wales. But I mean, Keneally was, a, was the Gillard locally in that Keneally is relatively clean but was a figurehead for a really corrupt government. But Carr, I mean, Carr was a really funny one because basically under Carr, and this is what you expect to see with the Labour Party, which is that the kind of opportunists, people who aren't in it for ideological reasons, join when you're having success in order to share the spoils of victory. And then that stuff, you know, because there's graft to be done, there's, there's you know, money to be made out of an incumbent government. When you're in government, 
these people run run right and start taking over. And so the, the Labour Party, by the time Carr left, to do what Lenin would call indirect corruption, that is, I mean, Carr, like, you know, left the premiership and went on to take a highly remunerated job working for a Macquarie Bank or whatever. But that that's that's okay because that's not technically corruption. That's just, you know, being a neoliberal, taking huge amounts of money from the banks. But by the time Carr went, like the New South Wales right faction had become totally dominated by these non-ideological power brokers who were just in it to make money. And they then ran the show. And not just locally, but also nationally. They're, they're the people who... So New South Wales right function, faction were the ones who rolled Rudd and put Gillard in. And Gillard is an ideological left-winger who was put in by the right of the Labour Party basically as cover. I mean, Gillard is Gillard is exemplary of everything we're seeing now, which is uh, you go, well, we'll have a left-wing woman who's going to make a speech about misogyny and she can be there while there's a bunch of fat men in suits controlling things behind the scenes. Um, I mean, this is, it's like a kind of beta woke capitalism. Yeah, and because it is clearly the New South Wales right in the, of, the, of the Federal, Federal Labour Party that is... The foundation of a lot of this well, was was because I mean what's happened now is Labor they got to a point where they became complete the Labor Party in general federal or local level became unelectable in New South Wales because they became so corrupt so they, they, their brand was absolutely trashed which means that these kind of people and of course they people have been prosecuted and so on so I take it this is no longer the case like that corruption is gone the Labor Party now you know the, in New South Wales is actually pretty clean but has no base of power operations anymore What's clearly happened is that exactly the same process has, and I think completely autonomously occurred within the Victorian Liberal Party, uh, Labour Party, sorry, the Victorian Labour Party, you know, 10 years later or whatever. And the Victorian Labour Party has become horribly corrupted. And that that's, I mean, it's, it's a bit unclear how far that's fed into federal politics, uh, but also it's, it's kind of moot because, fed, you know, the Federal Labour Party continues to have no power. And this, this counts for the Liberal Party as well. No one is actually a member of these parties anymore. I mean, you actually, you know, I can't mm-hmm. remember what the national membership of the Labour Party is, but it's like something like half the membership of the Collingwood Football Club. This is an obvious point, but it's true, is that what ends up happening is that, as you say, these parties become empty receptacles for people who are psychopaths, basically, you know, you know completely non-ideological power players. And here I'm going to sound like the kind of, you know, left winger that I was trying not to be last time. But I mean, this is this is politics under capitalism. The absolute classic text on this is, I mean, I alluded to already, like first chapter or introduction or whatever it is of Lenin's State and Revolution. There's no way that you can have a meaningfully non-corrupt political system under capitalism because you're going to get money and power are so close together that you're not, I mean, how how are you going to in a capitalist society, have people working for genu- genuine genuine principles, unless those principles are also remunerable, which is what what we see today. So you know, like in a period where corporations want to advertise to a wider demographic, then sure you can have politicians who are doing all the right things on gender and race because that's compatible with a with a, the agenda of capital. But you can't have politicians who genuinely anti-capitalist i mean where's the basis for that to to occur i mean this is what we've seen very recently in america and the uk we've seen genuinely anti-capitalist kind of i mean corbyn i think genuinely anti-capitalist bernie i'm a little bit less clear but you know genuinely left-wing socialist guys trying to get up i mean the obstacles in their way are titanic and and have destroyed both of them both absolute grassroots worker-based effort have been destroyed and they've been destroyed by the, the, the supposedly left-wing political party, which in Democrats in America and the Labour Party in the UK are dominated by grifters. 
They're dominated by people who want a nice career. There are some funny exceptions to that. I mean, mean, there was an interesting takedown a while ago on Chapo Trap House about Biden on the basis that Biden is hilarious because he's literally spent his whole career as a kind of shill for the insurance industry as a senator for Delaware, but has actually not not really made money out of it. Like, he's, he's the most extraordinary case of someone who, like, has just out of the goodness of his own heart and out of principal convictions done the dirty work of large corporations but hasn't really enriched himself, which is... Yeah, but this, I mean, the point I'm making is that in capitalism, you, you don't have to be corrupt, but you can only get on as long as you have a politics which aligns with capital. Yeah, and I was, I was thinking that's exactly right in the sense that, you know, you mentioned Bernie and Corbyn, and six months ago, I would have had a different opinion on this, but I am, I've now, and you're, you're going to say, well, obviously, but, you know, it took me a while, but here I am. Capital will, will, will not let them succeed. That kind of political movement will not be allowed to succeed. I, six months ago, would have thought that there was a pathway for a grassroots movement to actually succeed, to overcome the interests of capital, but I no longer think that. They will not be allowed. And then it comes back to what you were talking about before and also what we talked about last week about the superego and the id. And I think that as, as you know, that original point, which is to say that, you know, a genuine politics can't work within capital, as it becomes hollowed out, what then fills that gap is this kind of obsession with the symbol. and. I think then, I'm thinking out loud here, but I think then is that you have these kind of very strange libidinal kind of political movements as we kind of try and fill the vacuum with things that are actually, you know, perhaps quite destructive. Yeah. I, mean, I think there's, it's a basic kind of mechanical, I'm thinking of it in hydraulic terms. There's an upswell of pressure. I mean, an almost literal sense in society for change. And it will just flow into the pathways of least resistance. And that's what we're seeing with what's going on currently, which is the points where there's not stiff resistance are around, you know, race issues, gender issues. Like there's a significant, you know, portion of the status quo sympathetic to that stuff. It's like, okay, so that's that's where it's been allowed to flow to. And the attempt to dive, you know, the attempt to break through, to have that pressure break through and change things at at the level of class dynamics in society has been effectively blocked and the flows have gone in these other directions. And that's now dissipating it. You know, if you think of, you know, the hydraulic pressure, it's now, it's gone into those channels. It's gone, instead of being anti-capitalist, it's, it's into kind of anti-whiteness. Uh, you know, I don't know where the, the end point of that is because I just don't, that pressure has been kind of partially released. I mean, there's kind of certain left-wing narrative that says, ah, oh, you know, well, it's, it's fine because the capital can't actually make these concessions, which kind of is true to a certain point. Like, I don't actually believe they're going to abolish prisons or defund the police. But... I, you know, I don't think capitalism requires the police killings of black people, for example. I think there will be reform simply because it will defuse a certain amount of a certain amount of pressure. Yeah, and it comes back to the Black Lives Matter protests, and I think what you say is exactly right. In so far as what's extraordinary is how quickly those kinds of very serious protests and riots transformed into symbolic projects and symbolic concerns, like within two weeks. Like, it's crazy. And I was was reading about Martin Luther King last night, and I think it's a similar thing. People always forget in the last last two or three years of, of King's life, he was directing all his energies towards a broader anti capitalist project. Whereas now he's remembered for kind of, you know, liberal consensus, this kind of stuff, which was the kind of the initial part of his 
project. But then, of course, he was killed once he started getting serious. But it's the same. It's the same thing that happens with any thinker, any figure. If there's something that you so the the acceptable part of their message will be adopted, and the unacceptable remainder, even if it's the core of their message, will be left at the door. I mean, even any any kind of historical figure, and this is basically basically how it happens. I mean, best case scenario, of course. I mean, sometimes there's just like ridiculous dissimulation about it, and this is what I mean. This is this is what you see in the, the history of ideas. I mean, it's long been my bugbear, you know, working as I've spent most of my kind of adult life working on thought of Michel Foucault, who I think is is basically a very radical, politically radical thinker. But his work tends to be reduced to the most, to, to total banalities. And, you know, th- ideas he has, which, are, you know, can be accommodated to the status quo are the ones that are, are most vociferously taken up. Uh, and But that's, I think it's true of, you know, it's true of anyone. Even, I mean, even like up to and including Marx. I mean, if you look at the way Marx is read in China today, for example, I mean, there's, you know, they're, they're basically any, any thinker, they'll either try and just totally bag them out, which is what happens to Marx in the West, or they'll try and co-opt him in, the, in you know, the service of, you know, making money and the rest of it. And... Oh, sorry, I thought, you, I thought you were still going. Yeah, I said the word and and then said nothing afterwards. It's just a bit of a, a, bit of a trademark. I mean, what's the end? What's the end? Well, uh, eventually communism will win because we'll get to a point where all the other contradictions are resolved. I mean, maybe. Maybe if, you know, we solve, if, the, if within capitalism, contradictions around gender and race are solved, we'll be left with only one, the class contradiction, and then it, then it will actually finally have to be solved. I mean, that, that'd be like a, a best case, extremely Marxist reading of this. Uh, I mean, I think we're both pretty black-filled at this point, though. Yeah, I think I think I agree, and it, it comes down. I think this. I mean, I don't want to bring it back to COVID because we've already discussed it. But I think I think it's worth mentioning that the broader point regarding that no one knows what's going on. I think one of the facts, one of the reasons why this is such a strange time is because, on the one hand, yes, the, the virus is causing great anxiety about you know the future and stuff, but it intersects with a, a greater anxiety in regards to the future of capital and all this kind of stuff. I think we're, we're, there's there's multiple intersections of uncertainty at the moment. Maybe maybe I'm slightly over-egging that, but I think I, th- I think there's a degree of truth to that, and especially after the global financial crisis. There's a there's a genuine sense of it's as you say, what, and what what comes after the end? I don't know, and I certainly don't think that you know with the victory of say communism or something like that that there's going to be the elimination of our problems. Maybe some of them. No, oh, I think that's right. I mean, this is this is where I, where I'm at with this now. Which my my analysis remains Marxist in the sense, like, so I think Marx is basically right about everything, uh, except for the the broad historical some of the broad historical claims. So I think you know the things that most people are skeptical about with Marx, kind of eschatological, dialectical view of history, leading to the liberation, self liberation of the working class, and, and getting rid of capitalism. But I think I think Marx is basically right about everything. But I mean, the problem with Marx is that you know I don't think. I think materialism doesn't offer you doesn't offer you the solution to real problems because your real problems aren't material problems. Or if they are material problems, they're so ba- if your real problems are material problems, then they're problems that are so basic that you, you don't even need communism to solve them. I mean, so if your if your problem is that you, like your kids are dying of cholera and you don't have enough to eat, then yeah, okay, that's a pretty serious material problem and and it's not a spiritual problem you need to solve. But you can solve that like that's not require you know full communism. 
like that that's a problem which has been solved within capitalism in the Western world, for example. I'm not sure it's been permanently solved. Like I'm not sure it's not going to come back. It's it's solvable within capitalism, within other forms of social relations that aren't communism. So I, yeah, I think I think the problems we have in life. I mean, I think I think politics is is a dead end, both in the sense that it's hopelessly you know corrupt under capitalism and, and isn't going to do the class politics you want it to do. But I also think that the and this is what I was saying last time, that the eschatological aspirations of Marxists are, at their peak, they make of Marxism an ersatz religion. You know, it's, Marxism is a religious worldview that is strongly redolent of Christianity that says that, you know, that in the end, I mean, this, this kind of communism will win, um, we will bury you. Like that, it, it's basically just Christianity, but but materialist Christianity. So instead of saying we're going to win spiritually, it hopes for an eventual. I mean, it's it's what I think is not the strongest suit of Christianity. The idea that uh, you know things will be, you know, we will be saved not now, but at, at some future date when our, our corpses will rise from the ground. And well, I mean that that that's a pretty a pretty narrow hope, but that that seems to be the the hope of Marxism that somehow, I mean here, it makes me think of Alan Badiou, the greatest living philosopher, in in my opinion, but my you know it's it's obviously the case. What Badiou does with Marxism is turn it from an economic doctrine into a kind of spiritual doctrine that says. You know what? What we need is an absolute commitment to the truth, and you know, actually, Badiou misses the kind of central existential importance of his project, which is that the fidelity to the event is the main game, not the telos of the event. I mean, what I mean by that is, when when you're a Marxist, you actually get some reason. Marxism is popular, is not because it's going to give you communism. It's popular because it gives you something to believe in. That's why people are Marxists. But that there's a weird wholeness to that because Marxism, including in, in I mean, Badiou's not really a Marxist in, in a conventional sense, but remains, I mean, he still has a fidelity to the event of the, com- the communist revolution. So there's certainly a reference to Marxism. What this means is this Marxism is paradoxically, it's a religious movement that believes it isn't a religious movement. This to me is its weakness, because if you're going to have a religious movement, have a religious movement. Yeah. It's really just like different modalities of salvation here. And I think this comes down to utopianism of, of, of its various sorts. And I think, but it's worth reiterating or at least asking because I think for our listeners, they're going to be skeptical, at least some of them are going to be skeptical about what, what spiritual life is and indeed whether it needs to be, whether it's a thing. I think this is something, again, this is, not, this is certainly not an original point, but this is something that capitalism does, which is that it actually makes you believe that you're not a spiritual creature. And so you you don't need you, you don't know you need to be saved. I'm not sure what I think about that. I mean, the, I do have a note to make about the word spiritual, which is, as, look, as far as I'm concerned, I could have just said psychological. The word spiritual start, sounds a bit fruity. To that's me. right. I think, I think that that's, sorry, that, that's that's what I'm sort of getting at. It's, it's, it's the fruitiness that people are scared of. Yeah. And, you know, to which I say stop being homophobic. So let's go back to the Greek. The English word psyche, right? Psyche, Greek word, is, you know, the root of psychological. I mean, this word in Greek means indifferently soul or spirit or mind. 
And I take it that these days, you know, people are like Bart Simpson. They want to say, I don't have a soul, but they say they have a mind. Well, it's the same thing. There's merely a confusion of terms that like, you know, the term soul or spirit have been left to kind of hippies or the religious. And the term mind is something that, you know, can be believed in. I mean, actually, philosophy, this is very well-worn territory, but the status of the mind in, in contemporary thought is very vexed because you can't find it with an MRI. And actually, all the problems that people thought occurred with believing in a spirit or soul are also true of believing that you have a mind or consciousness. These are not, these are not objects you can find in a lab. Uh, so, you know, I honestly prefer to talk about things being spiritual because it doesn't, you know, do this thing of trying to kind of materialize something that we ultimately can't materialize, namely the mind. Just what the relationship of that materialism to capitalism is, I'm less than sure about that because it's it's very clear that, you know, Marxism obviously is, is, is materialist. It's very clear that, I mean, it's very clear that contemporary capitalism is tremendously materialist. But I'm not sure that that's that's the logic of capital that's driven that. Like, I, I, I wouldn't want to say, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, capital can find ways to sell things to the spirit. I mean, there's a huge industry around some of that stuff. So materialism is is not being driven by capitalism. And it's something that I think is not, I mean, of course, within capitalism, it, it's capitalized, let's say. But it's something that's been driven by the kind of scientific enlightenment, which, I mean, I guess it's enabled capitalism insofar as, previous religious viewpoints that weren't materialist stood in the way of capitalism. So it's, a, it's not a matter of capitalism needing materialism, but that of needing to demolish the idea that the well-being of the soul is primary because that prevents the accumulation of money becoming the main goal for people in you know, our society, which is what has happened. I mean, it's it, very clearly. So like the urge to make money has taken over forms of religion, which teach a, a prosperity gospel and say you know money is actually reward from god and that religion is about making money have taken over from forms of more authentic forms of religion which say that no spiritual well-being is about i mean this is literally what you get in the gospel spiritual well-being is is your reward and if you chase money you're not engaged in in a search for spiritual well-being at all yeah and i think it's I, what i actually meant to say when i said capitalist i actually meant secular and it's it's a secularism and obviously there are some intersections with modern secularism and capitalism obviously but yeah. what we what i really meant was a kind of the modern form of disenchantment and the various flow on effects of that and what and how that deal with the spiritual i was when you were saying talking about the the non-distinction between the soul and the, the spirit and the mind i was reminded of a book i read a few years ago which said that in if you read homer obviously in the in the in homeric greek there is no distinction between mind and body you know mind and heart these all these distinctions are, are after homer yeah i mean it's, it's worth saying actually because i thought about saying so talking about the psyche i mean psyche in in greek i mean although it can mean both soul and mind i mean actually what it means is breath yes exactly it's and that's how all this vocabulary gets started by naming a part of the body the heart or you know the, the idea that the soul has a seat in the body it's it's true. I mean, it, all this stuff is abstracted from an understanding of a corporeal human being in the first place, and, and a conception of life as well, and a particular conception of life, which is you know very ancient. I don't know what that means. Well, on that bombshell. <laughs> Goodbye, Mark. Until next time. Cheers, James. Stay safe. Always. <laughs>